Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 263 of the Fun with Cars Formula One podcast, or episode four of 2020. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man that sends Lewis Hamilton a new love letter for every race win, Chris Rose. Hey, Chris. <laughs> hey, Robin. Yeah, it's a lot of work, I have to say. The winds are just uh, being chalked up pretty rapidly. I would imagine your hands are getting quite tired this season. <laughs> I'm not sure I like where this conversation's going. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about the month of August and its four Grands Prix, uh, the sale of Williams to a New York investment firm, or is it, and uh, Nico Hulkenberg's brief return to the sport. But, uh, yeah, it's been quite a month. You know, August is usually, there's some news here and there, but it's the summer break. So it's a lighter month to talk about. Obviously, that's not the case this time around. Not at all. I mean, and what's fascinating is we've had two doubleheaders, and yet both races at each uh, doubleheader have been quite different. So the, the worries about dull repetition were unfounded. Oh, absolutely. It, it's been remarkable just how different the races have been, actually. I found a lot of relief in that as much as anything. Now, when you say two, two double headers... Um, so far this season, not oh, during the month season. of August. Ah, yeah, 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 so yeah. Okay. Just one in, one in August, two British Grand Prix. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, no, it's not the, there's not two British Grand Prix. It was the British Grand Prix and the 70th anniversary Grand Prix, of course. And then, uh, and then we had the Grand Prix of Spain and the most wonderful Grand Prix of all, or one of them anyway, uh, Spa. Um, although I say that and immediately re refute myself because Monza, which is coming soon, is always, always, always mega. But um, do you want to do this chronologically? I, I, I feel like really in a lot of ways the big news is Williams, but at the same time, uh, I definitely want to talk about Nico Hulkenberg and the races in general. So uh, you can be the navigator of this ship. Chris, wh where should we start? Yeah, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the return of the Hulk. That was really quite entertaining, and that'll take us into the British Grand Prix, won't it? So, I mean, for the the first round at Silverstone, um, Sergio Perez had uh, got it, managed to get himself uh, COVID nineteen and tested positive, so he had to actually take ten days away uh, to recuperate. Uh, and self-isolate and that allowed the Hawkster to make a, a star return and um, he didn't disappoint us. Oh, I mean, it was such an interesting uh, set of facts that led to uh, that led to that first uh, British Grand Prix weekend. It was Wednesday before the race weekend that Sergio got an inconclusive test and then I believe Thursday morning that it was, oh no, you've got it, confirmed test. And Sergio was asymptomatic. I believe he was more or less asymptomatic the entire time. But from Thursday morning to Friday morning, uh, Nico Hulkenberg was decided to be the replacement in lieu of the two other Mercedes reserve drivers, um, <laughs> which is a fascinating story in itself. In of itself, absolutely. 
And and Nico Hulkenberg, I believe, lives in Germany. Well, maybe it's Monaco, just like everyone else. Uh, it's probably Monaco now. That I think about it. He he's he's sipping. He's got this nice little uh, Twitter or Instagram post where um, Thursday morning he's sipping uh, he's sipping coffee and having a pastry at a at a cafe. And the next day he's getting a seat fitting and getting in the car for the first time. Uh, it, it, it really was a fascinating set of circumstances. As I understand it, Stoffel Van Dorn was going to be their first choice. He is a Mercedes reserve driver. He is also a Formula E driver, and I believe that there were Formula E commitments or obligations that kept Stoffel Van Dorn away from the seat. And then Force India, what once was Force India, Racing Point said, ah, thanks but no thanks on Gutierrez, the other reserve driver, will will look for someone else. That's well, as, that's how I understand it. Yeah, because Gutierrez hasn't driven for like five years, has he? Anything? That little well, F one car. He's well. I know for a fact he's driven an F one car in the last couple of years because he was at the Mercedes, and this was last year. He was at the Mercedes one hundred twenty fifth anniversary, and I believe he drove like a twenty fourteen car. Um, and he does a fair amount of simulator work. But, no, he hasn't driven an actual car in a while. Yeah, and, I mean, it was quite lucky that, obviously, Racing Point's factory is located about a stone's throw from the entrance to Silverstone. So it wasn't, it wasn't uh, that inconvenient for Hawk to go back and forth. Of course, the biggest disappointment was the car didn't fire up, or they had some technical issue prior to the Grand Prix. So he, you know, he, he, he uh, was certainly not, entirely on Stroll's pace through Friday and qualifying in the first race and then um, he didn't get to start the race at all unfortunately in the Sunday which was a bit a uh, bit of an anticlimax. Well that but, was a whirlwind all in its own absolutely you know having just his first laps in the car our free free practice one on Friday and by qualifying he's not on top of Stroll, but he's he's competitive. He's right there. And he's dealing with a neck that has had more than a year to lose muscle and uh, to hold his head up. So he's dealing with that and other, I'm sure, other muscles that are not used as a forces placed upon him like that. And he's still managing. He's doing an extremely respectable job. And then the car doesn't start on Sunday morning. Of, I mean, it was the most Hulkenberg possible thing to happen. <laughs> I mean, it's the weirdest thing. When can you remember an F1 car not, not taking to the grid and starting a race? I can't remember I the mean, last I time that happened. We've had two this season. It's really odd. Yeah. And, you know, it feels like, it feels like a decades-old issue where the carburetors are out of tune and they can't get the choke right <laughs> to get the thing started. I mean, what, what happened... What happened that this thing can't get fired up? It's, it really was a bizarre set of circumstances. And I have to admit that my brain instantly went to conspiracy theories of what and who and why they didn't actually want Hulkenberg in that Grand Prix for some mysterious reason. And so uh, Bernie Ecclestone pulled out, dusted off his master switch and flipped something and, they couldn't, and he couldn't start it or something like that. But uh, well, you, yeah, I mean, you can never put it past. Uh, maybe Lawrence decided he wanted to spare uh, his son's blushes, but uh, it all went wrong in race two. But we'll come to that in a minute. 
So, but let's uh, let's let's keep going with Hulkenberg for just a moment, just a little bit longer, uh, and then we'll jump back into the first Grand Prix because there's plenty to talk about there. He gets he gets he's in the car for the following weekend. Well, he's, yeah, because well, hang on, hang on, Perez. Everyone thought he was going to get a pass from the British government and uh, and be allowed to take a second test spot, seven days, only a seven a seven day quarantine period, and so he would be available for the second British Grand Prix. But then he tested positive again. <laughs> so he, he was done. And, uh, of course, uh, Racing Point wisely decided to stick with Hulkenberg for race two. And Hulkenberg puts it third on the grid. Yeah, stunning. So, so very impressive on so many levels, completely independent of your opinions of Racing Point's car versus Mercedes' car last year and the way at which they got to that car. He, after being outside of outside of the sport for eighteen months, is in the car for the first time. Out qualifies his teammate and puts it on the second row. I, you can't. That's that's just you gotta have mountains of respect for him. And the question then begs. And his race was fine. We'll get into that in a little way in a little while. Does that? put Hulkenberg back on this in the scene for a drive in 2021 well I, I think it has to and I also think he's going to be the super sub for the remainder of this year because anyone else who gets COVID and inevitably there probably will be at least one other driver that succumbs through this strange year that we're, we're all enjoying um, I mean why wouldn't you draft him in so he could appear in any number of cars yet this season it'll be like spot the Hulkenberg contest <laughs> and, and why not I mean you know he was his race pace wasn't quite there but I mean that that one lap speed was uh, was awesome and, and you know it does make you wonder why on earth he's not on the grid with a permanent uh, permanent seat and he should be definitely should be and there's a few seats that are looking a bit shaky quite frankly yeah that's fair no and look his his race pace wasn't quite there, but that was his first race in 18 months uh, and only his second qualifying. So, you know, to be fair to and plus, again, I you know, neck strain and other muscles probably in the shoulders and uh, in the in the core are probably are probably smarting a fair amount. And if there were a seat coming um, with any amount of uh, any amount of warning more than a day, he could start doing some training to prepare to better prepare himself so he's not physically um, physically behind, physically handicapped in any way. So yeah, no, I loved having him there. I loved his spirit about it. I, I it was it I was I was happier to see him on the grid than I expected to be, and I expected to be happy about it. So I, I definitely hope he's back. Yeah, and I mean the the thing that would have been totally remarkable. This, this is a driver, you know, who was certainly quick at times throughout his career, but never quite managed to make it on the podium. And of course, the speculation as he lined up third on the grid was that could he, in this weird sort of comeback drive, finally break that that streak of uh, probably one of the fastest drivers never to not you know never to get on the podium. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it didn't quite work out, and it was always going to be tough with Max sat right behind him. Uh, uh, let alone, you know, some of the other fairly quick, uh, you know, much more in the groove drivers that were. But he what? He, what did he finish? I mean, he finished seventh. So he's got more world championship points than both Williams drivers, 
both both Alfa Romeo drivers, and I think both has drivers. So not bad, not bad no. for one race start. No, no, <laughs> it's not bad to be that far along in the drivers' championship with just that one outing. And again, could it have been double that or better? Had the car start both times, you know. Oh, so it's, yeah. You know, I hear that the. I hear that those Weber carburetors are quite good, but <laughs> awfully finicky. So maybe Racing Point should look into that. Well, Mercedes but, uh, told them that's what they used in 2019. <laughs> 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 so uh, we did have a British Grand Prix uh, in addition to the 70th anniversary Grand Prix. And the real drama of that race proved to be the tires. Well, was it? I mean, the real drama was that you know, even on three wheels, Hamilton's the best driver in Formula One. I think that was the, <laughs> the drama, wasn't it? They could have, you know, that was the funniest part about this whole story was they could easily. Was that, was that could, the first sentence of your love letter? Uh, <laughs> after they, <laughs> I mean, you know, he, they could have easily pitted him uh, prior to the last lap, but they were like, "No, Lewis, show us what you could do on three wheels." <laughs> <laughs> Now I feel forced to say that it happened halfway through the last lap and he was losing ground very rapidly to Max Verstappen, who did pit just a lap or two before and was hence 35 seconds behind instead of 5 seconds behind or 10 seconds behind or whatever it was. And Hamilton was extremely lucky for that fact. Um, and he was able to just squeak out the win that way. But it was remarkable how... I think a custom, uh, the drivers and the teams have come to just managing tire wear, slowing deliberately down to keep the, you know, just doing this, doing the math to find out, well, what's faster, managing the tires or doing the pit stop? And so we're getting in this really bizarre place where uh, people are deliberately going slow. But yet, here was a circumstance where the tires truly were overloaded and they were failing partially the way Mercedes whatever Mercedes was doing was putting more pressure on the tires than others but it wasn't just Mercedes that was having issues that was having blisters that was having those problems so for me I thought it was proof that generally speaking the tires should be weaker not stronger because that forces the teams to um use the tires properly in my opinion yeah well I mean it was fascinating how the tires behaved between the two races wasn't it how um, by going to one grade softer across the board for race two and changing the tire pressures the performance of the Mercedes was uh, completely upset um, yes and we had you know a very different pecking order um, I, I think the the interesting thing for me about the GB race was that you know Red Bull had to defend their decision to pit Verstappen to go for the fastest lap because arguably if they kept him on the track he would have won the race. Yeah, but it's, it's just just a bunch of captain hindsights there. I mean, <laughs> you know, and and Red Bull themselves said no, it was a completely reasonable decision. It was protecting Max from having a tire issue because he was showing troubling signs as well. Plus, it gave him the chance to go for fastest lap, which is a point. To then get upset at Red Bull for not predicting that the leader of the race was going to have a tire failure, but stay on track and be able to hobble the car home, 
to me was just completely silly. Um, well, apart thought, from the fact that it then became clear that Fiat crashed because of a tire problem, and then Carlos crashed, obviously with a with the same blistering issue, and then yeah. the, you know Botas had happened on what lap fifty. So I mean, there was some evidence that everyone was struggling, and that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I agree. It was uh, it almost it more, almost paid off for them anyway. I mean, you set the fastest lap on the last lap, uh, Max did, and uh, and he and did came, get the point. And he came within what seven seconds of actually catching Hamilton. So within six, five point eight point five point eight five six seconds. But yeah. I think I think there's another discussion point here, and it was Lewis Hamilton. He his skill behind the wheel was absolutely evident. Brilliant drive from him for sure, um, but also his luck because that tire failed in such a way that it did not damage any part of the car, which it very easily could have done, and also did not start shredding itself to bits, which would have forced a black flag on him, or for, you know would have forced him to pull off the track or receive a black flag. So he was extremely lucky that the tire failed when it did and the way it did that allowed him to hobble at home. I mean, that was brilliant driving, but also extremely fortunate. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. But, I mean, bear in mind that Botas was able to do almost an entire lap um, in the same condition. So something about, the you know, we've seen certain tire failures. The tire seems to disintegrate and starts flailing around and, and, and causing you know huge amounts of damage to carbon fiber floors and, and other bits of bodywork. Whereas for whatever reason, the failure mode on the tire um, was quite different, wasn't it? Because it basically sheared off at the top of the sidewall. And so it was one complete carcass that was still you know on the car so i know what you're i know what you're saying but it was it was the failure mode i think of all the tires that sort of helped both of them to to make it to uh to pit successfully or or to get home successfully yeah that's that's a fair fair enough point it's still a risky it's still a risk it's you know there's no denying uh that side of it of course I mean, it was a remarkable. I think if Hamilton had lost the win, there would have been a massive inquiry as to why Mercedes didn't pit him because they had, you know, a free stop. And I mean, okay, uh, there's always the chance that a pit stop can go wrong, but you know, a bad pit stop these days is like four seconds. So they would have, they could have comfortably pitted him, and he could have gone the last lap and and still won by you know twenty odd seconds. Uh, whether or not he, you know, got the fastest lap. So that was a very odd decision for me. Why they didn't pit him, um, and uh, they, yeah, they they got away with one. There's no doubt. Yeah, but as you as you mentioned before, it led to it, so it was predetermined ahead of time that it was going to be a softer compound for the second uh, 70th anniversary Grand Prix, the second uh, Grand Prix at Silverstone. But what did change was the increased minimum tire pressures and it was increased by a fair amount i believe it was 27 psi was the minimum and i think it's usually you know 22 23 something in there it was a big change and and i'm sure it's actually in you know kilopascals or whatever but you know what i'm talking about mm-hmm. and it was fascinating to hear uh hamilton start questioning red bull's 
uh, minimum tire pressures and things like that after Max Verstappen had just a much superior car in those conditions, the weather conditions and the tire conditions, that he won he won the British Grand Prix second time round. Well, and comfortably too. I mean, it was a it was a smart move by Red Bull to put him on the uh, medium compound in qualifying rather than the soft compound tire. Very true. Um, which meant obviously he didn't quite get third place on the grid. His his customary position, Hulk beat him to that, but but it, it gave him a huge advantage. And when the Mercedes failed to pull away at the start of the race, you could see. Uh, that it was going to be a different sort of Sunday afternoon, and and he drove. I mean, he drove brilliantly, didn't he? To to ma- manage the tyres, to not overwork them, and uh, you know, Mercedes's race for both drivers fell apart pretty quickly. Yeah, completely agree. Um, and what did you think of? Uh, you know, that was a stronger set of races for Charles Leclerc as well. He was he was on the podium first time around, fourth place. Um, second time around, it seemed like Ferrari was going to be okay, but then you know, since then Ferrari's just fallen off a performance cliff. So, what did you make of Ferrari's performance in England? Well, I think the the, the car seems to be quite um, kind to the tires, right? It doesn't seem to wear them as hard as uh, some of the other cars, notably the you know the the Mercedes, and so that's partly I think why it struggled so much in in Belgium because they couldn't switch the tyre on so they never got it into the right operating temperature so they never really could extract the, the, the pace out of the tyre but conversely it helped them in, in the UK where they really didn't have the sort of wear issues that other, other teams were suffering from and they were able to one stop and I mean that's the same with Vettel in Spain he got uh, seventh place through one stopping where you know everyone else had to do two stops so I mean there's definitely an interesting situation going on there I mean we'll probably want to come back and talk about that in in in, uh, in, in more depth but I think you know Leclerc showed himself to be you know able to extract the maximum out of what he was given that weekend and he I mean he he really shaded Vettel in both races I mean Vettel finished 10th in in the first one and 12th in the second and was really, really struggling for pace. He was miles off Leclerc's pace in both uh, qualifying and race trim. I mean, shocking. Well, I mean, Vettel is just in this, like, underworld, you know, hellscape of a, a, of a racing season. You know, considering that he's got one of the most coveted drives on the planet and he's making crap tons of money and I do believe that's the official term <laughs> that's not in his contract is it yeah I, like it goes millions billions trillions crap ton I think that's uh, that's the uh, I think that's the hierarchy of it all so given all that he's just in this like shockingly deep dark place and it's like a downward spiral kind of situation there was a little bit of resurgence in uh, in in Spain and Spa in terms of relative performance, but you know, it's it's just been bad for him all around. I still can't forget his race in Hungary, where I believe it was Hungary, where Leclerc just took him out. So, um, you know, he's just had this crazy season. But um, I, I do wanted to come back because this second race, this is where Hulkenberg actually raced, and he did finish, and he finished seventh, just as you said. Uh, he finished just behind Lance Stroll, but there was some anomalies going on with pit stops and things like that there 
that I felt were just a little bit off. But what did you think of um, Hulkenberg's performance on at the 70th Grand Prix? Yeah, I mean, they had to give... He, he did, what, two stops? I think two stops, uh, or even three, I, I believe, to... Uh, he, was, he was struggling with the blistering, and whether or not, you know, that extra stop was so Lance could get ahead of him, you know, that's, you know some might say that that was the cause. But uh, I think his, his comment after the race was, yeah, he just... Uh, was struggling, struggling with the tyres, and uh, they had to make the additional stop. So he wasn't the only one out there. And it was, it was three stops. He was the second to last person to stop. He he stopped for the third time on lap forty four. Nicholas Latifi did so on lap forty six. Um, but yeah, and that compares to uh, that compares to his teammates' two stops. So. But, I mean, I think it was a wake-up call for Stroll, wasn't it? For sure. That the, the pace of Hulkenberg, a guy who'd been out for that long, as you mentioned, 18 months, who, uh, who turns up, never driven the, you know, driven the car. What, he, when did he last race for Racing Point? Three seasons ago? So he, he knows the team. He probably knows a few of the mechanics. But the car's yes. obviously evolved a lot since then. I mean, it's evolved into a Mercedes, for one thing. So... <laughs> He had to learn all the systems and get comfortable in the car, and he's right on the pace of Stroll. I mean, that that is alarming. Well, and it opens up a new conversation about Stroll's pace. Um, but it also, you know, it definitely, you know, as as the rumor mill circulates about Vettel being a racing point driver potentially in the future, it equally circulated if Hulkenberg might be the teammate. And they're like, well, you know what? Boot them both out. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares if one's the son and the other one has a contract? This to shuffle them along, and uh, but it, it it was a really fascinating touch point. I mean, Stroll is an extremely talented race car driver. He's also extraordinarily uh, gifted, uh, lucky for his life circumstances, and. Uh, you know, I do believe that it's been proven that uh, Lawrence Stroll loves his son more than you love yours because you have not purchased any go-karting teams or racing teams for your son, at least not yet. You still have time, Chris, but... Uh, I was going to say, that's a premature accusation. And, and to be fair... You don't I, know I haven't bought the Williams team yet. I mean, we haven't even gone to that conversation. <laughs> well, um, that is a very fair point. And I was just going to uh, confess that I have not purchased Harrison a thing when it comes to racing teams or cars. So uh, uh, clearly Lawrence loves uh, Lance much more than I love Harrison. So it's true among both of us. I am not trying to single you out. Uh, it, is, it is true for both of us. I mean, so would you consider... Booting Albon and putting Hulkenberg in the second Red Bull. Oh, Albon's such a good guy, though. He I mean, is, I know. I feel bad even suggesting it, but he's not yeah. getting it done, is he? I mean, he's disappointed me this year. He's been I, unlucky, of course, but he's still disappointed me. The, the Albon's biggest issue, to, seems to me, is qualifying pace. His race pace and his race aggression is generally still quite good, I feel. But he can't... He's not being able to get it close enough in qualifying. There's times when Verstappen has more than a half second on him. And uh, these were a lot of the rallying cries that you made against um, 
uh, uh, Gasly. Uh, Gasly yeah. against Gasly. So it's deja vu. I mean, the same argument could be made absolutely against Albon. Which I mean, does beg the question of how, how does the team operate in terms of support for for Stappen versus support for uh, the, the the teammate? It, well, they brought a new race engineer in. Actually, to be fair, Red Bull are trying. They seem to be maybe trying too hard. We'll come on to that. But they brought a, a more uh, seasoned race engineer uh, who had been moved back to the, the operation of Milton Keynes. They brought him back to help Albon find his way in, in car setup. Um, and uh, Christian Horner seems to be you know, taking the approach of putting his arm around him and, and trying to encourage him, which is a slightly different approach to what he took with Albon, where he threw him <laughs> under every bus he could find. <laughs> you mean and, Gasly? No, yes, thank you, Gasly. Yes. Um, and... Um, so they do seem to be making some some effort to, to make this work, but you know they've been putting him on some pretty strange strategies, which I think is you know it wasn't the case in in these two Grand Prix, but in Spain they put him on hard tires really early in the race, which which ruined his race quite frankly, and um, they didn't really uh, help him out too much in Belgium either because they put him on the medium and not the hard compound tire, which cost him so. Uh, they do, um, yeah. It's it, it. It is an odd situation. I mean, we all know that Verstappen's quick, and I think we all rate him. But you know, Albon, remember, qualified with the exact same time to the thousandth of a second as Verstappen in uh, in Suzuka last year, right? I mean, that is a driver's track, big time. And he was right on the pace. So what's happened? Why is he half a second off this year? I mean, yeah. that's just bizarre. Yeah, completely agree. And I, I think that I think that there it, it could be a coincidence, but to me, it's evidence of something a little bit more systemic. Well, I mean, the frustration is right. The Red Bull's clearly the second quickest car on the grid, and we really want to have two quick Red Bulls, right? At least mixing it or keeping Mercedes a bit more honest, rather than just the one, the one car. And it's frustrating that he he seems Albon seems to be fighting whoever manages to qualify between him and Verstappen. I mean, in, in Britain, it was, uh, I think, the racing points. In uh, Belgium, it was the Renaults. In Spain, it was a whole host of people. Uh, it's just not, it's just not on. Uh, it's disappointing. And, but, you know, I don't, I don't uh, agree with the thoughts that Albon should be re-promoted. I mean, come on, we've been there and we've done that. I think... Uh, sorry, I think, I think you mean Gasly I again. think I mean Gasly. I'm having a Nico <laughs> Rosberg moment. I'm doing... I'm doing, I'm doing yeah. I, don't think Gasly, I don't think Gasly should be re-promoted and they shouldn't be switched again. I think they should... Uh, I think they should just find someone else to drive the second chassis. Yeah. So what you're saying, if I'm understanding correctly, is you want Red Bull to hire Nico Rosberg so that <laughs> Rosberg can be back. Is, is that correct? Not, not entirely. I would suggest that what Red Bull do is put Gasly and Albon in the AlphaTauri and let them you know, develop as race drivers and then find a bona fide number two to be oh Daniel Ricciardo perchance. I mean, why did they even let Daniel leave? You imagine the damage he'd be doing if he was in that Red Bull this season. Well, I mean, they didn't let Daniel left, and uh, I don't think it was a letting him go. They wanted him to stay. They were disappointed that he left. Uh, but yes, but, uh, you know. but but that's he left because he felt unloved because they shifted their attention to to Max. One hundred percent correct. Yeah, yeah. 
if they'd looked after him a bit better, he'd never have gone. Exactly right. And a good chance he would have been happier for it. But uh, I, I think that, uh, I think that uh, we're getting into a place where the, the podium finishes are feeling very Groundhog's Day. It, it is, you know, it is Valtteri Botas, Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen, you know, after qualifying after the race. Not every time, clearly, but there's been a lot of repetition. And that carried that carried through in Spain and it carried through in uh, Belgium as well, in Belgium as well. So I'm definitely with you. It'd be nice to get a bit more variety there. Well, yeah, I mean, it was it was three ham wins, one Verstappen win, and the only time the three of them weren't on the podium was because of Botas's puncture in the first British Grand Prix. Otherwise, it would have been the three of them on the podium there. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a shame, isn't it? I mean, you don't see any other team being able to to be quick enough over a weekend to to compete. Although, I guess one of the things we'll get to is is with the change in the uh, powertrain modes allowable for race weekend, that may... Party be, modes. Yeah, yes. party modes are gone. So the the theory is that'll stymie Mercedes's qualifying pace and even up the game. I suspect it won't. <laughs> but we shall see at Monza. I mean, is the assumption that Mercedes is the only one with a party mode? I mean, clearly Ferrari is suffering, so let's not even discuss them. But... <laughs> What's the inverse of a party mode? Right, uh, you know. <laughs> the li- the librarian mode, perhaps. yeah, the funk mode. That's what Ferrari have. <laughs> but like, I mean, you know, Honda is going to have something to be like. Yeah, turn it up here for this short amount of time. We can handle the extra heat and without damage or whatever. Renault, Renault is decades long engine manufacturer in Formula One. They know what's up. You know, for, for Renault had just as many melted turbos after 1,500 horsepower lap engines, uh, qualifying engines, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, just like everybody else said. Renault is going to have a party mode. Maybe it's not as effective, but it's going to be there, right? Am I, in, or am I taking crazy pills here? What, what is the assumption? Well, look, I mean, the Mercedes pace at some of these races has been a one-second gap in quality. Yeah, and when they haven't been managing the tires, it's been one second in the race. I mean, there are exceptions to that, but there's been a couple of races where, when Hamilton wanted to, Spain's a great example. You know, he looked after the tires for the first ten laps, and then he buggered off. Yeah, just disappeared down the road. So and won not, the race by twenty five seconds. Exactly, that's not party mode. That's just having a quicker car. <laughs> full stop. And, I mean, it's not like... I mean, when is party mode used? Q3, right? Uh, it's not like they're slow in Q1 and Q2 and then things come alive in Q3 and that's when they secure these great times. They're also dominant in Q1 and Q2, right? So and what am I missing? Because they're not dumb people at the FIA. I mean, what, what do they see that we don't see? Well, they've made some claim that it allows them to make sure that all the manufacturers are abiding by the rules and it's harder for them to monitor you know fuel flow usage when they're using these different modes but yeah, it does sound like it, it's a way to try and maybe help Ferrari out and stymie the Mercedes runners I mean it sounds like Williams might be one of the worst affected 
you know, they've had some great qualifying performances. Russell's been so yeah. great to watch. Oh, it's yeah. just been so great. Q2, you know, he's a Q2 regular almost, but yeah. his race pace is nowhere near it. So, yeah, you could argue that that might be due to the party mode. Um, although, you know, there were signs of life in Belgium because he was he was mixing it until he got taken out by... Uh, um, by the uh, Alfa Romeo of uh, Giovinazzi. Oh, yeah, Giovinazzi, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, but yeah, I mean, we, we'll, we'll see. We'll have to wait till Monza to, to, to see if that really affects and shakes up the order. There's some people who are being very optimistic about it, but I have my doubts. I think that it was like, uh, it was someone somewhere was saying, you have to do something. You have to appear to be doing something. So this was something that they could point to and say, look what we're doing to even things up. I, I, I have a feeling that they it, it's, this is an images reality type of play where they know that it's not going to have much of an effect, but they just, wanna, they just want people to see that they're making attempts to, clo- to tighten things up. That's the best I can come up with. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it is, it is too repetitive. And, I mean, you, you get the situation where Hamilton's having to apologize for his dominance after his Belgian Grand Prix win. And, you know, it's not the same as the, the good old days of Schumacher and Barrichello, where we knew, <laughs> we knew Schumacher was going to win, right, before the race started. At least there is a possibility that someone will beat Hamilton or be allowed to beat Hamilton, but yet he keeps winning. But, you know, it, 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 it does. Yeah, you need to have, we need to have more variety. It needs to be more exciting. Which brings me to your love letters. Are you running low on paper? Uh, <laughs> he he uh, he's had 89 wins now. Uh, the all-time record is 91. The chances of him matching and then surpassing that record this season seem quite high. Um, based on um, based on the regulation restrictions, the rule change restrictions for next year, I I it seems very very possible that we're going to get over 100 wins from Lewis Hamilton in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, I mean, he took Schumacher's podium record, right? I, I can't remember which race it was. I think it yes. might have been Spain. Yeah, and that was, what, 150, 155, something like that? Just some insane number, absolutely. Yeah. And then I think he now has the record for the most kilometers led, but Schumi still has the most laps led, if I'm uh, not mistaken. So, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I never thought anyone would get near Schumacher's records. It's extraordinary. That to he, be fair, real quick, the, these kilometers-led laps, I always hate those uh, because... Well, I mean, race wins, I guess, are, are ultimately the same. There's more... There were more... There are more races in a season now than there ever have been. Here we have a stunted season because of world pandemic, and it's still 17 races, which was more than a full season not that long ago. So, sorry, that's just a little mini rant. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, to those people who really dislike Hamilton uh, and really love Schumi, the good news is um, there was a study done to determine the fastest F1 driver since 1983, and Hamilton was only third in that, in that uh, study. Senna was first, Schumacher second. Mm. Uh, controversially, though, Lando Norris was 15th, which when you think about some of the great, great drivers in, in the last 37 years, Lando is not in the top 15 for me quite yet, or even the top 15 fastest drivers since, since 1983. So um, that was, it's, there, there was some controversy there, I think. But, uh, 
But you know, well, if you could, I mean, it's an imperfect study because it has to be. I mean, there's no, there's no true way of telling. So, I well, mean, I mean, one of the points that was made uh, was that uh, you know that, that it was said that it's definitive, right? You're comparing the pace of teammates who are in the same car. Yes, but that assumes that the car was set up, you know, to the same level of competency. Which I think you could argue in 37 years, it might be now, but it probably wasn't. You know, back in the eighties, and then you know, someone someone pointed out that now we have weight equalization, right? So it's minimum weight and driver. So if you're a fat lad, it, you're not penalised necessarily. Whereas mm-hmm. in if you compare when say Prost and Mansell race together, Mansell was giving away half a second just through body weight alone. So he mm-hmm. had to be half a second quicker than Prost just to achieve the same lap time due to him eating too many hamburgers. <laughs> uh, I like that. I think that's funny. I, I appreciate that. You know, is that is that a makes is that a makes thing? <laughs> I don't think he really likes hamburgers, but maybe it was sausage rolls. Because I, you know, I, I mean, he, he is the man who McLaren had to make a wide body chassis for him. Remember, he didn't fit, <laughs> didn't fit in the tub. Well, and I do know, uh, I do know that he loves golf, and uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the sport of the fittest folks in the world um no no uh, offense meant for any of the professional golfers who i'm sure are all very fit um yeah it's it's a fascinating it's it's a fascinating thing to study and also i you think about a driver's speed you could think about it in many ways pace over a single lap pace over a race distance uh, and how and how they manage it and what their strategies are. You know, I think about people like Fernando Alonso. He's not devastatingly fast over a single lap or necessarily a single race lap, but he's extremely good at picking apart the strategy for a race distance, n- knowing when to be aggressive, when to manage tires, when to d- he's extremely good at racecraft. So I feel like, you know, if you look at pace, he might not be considered quite as uh, outright fast. But if you look at, you know, his success behind the wheel, especially compared to his teammates, I obviously there, it's he's still one of the most highly regarded drivers out there. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think nobody argues with Senna being, you know, coming out of this algorithm as the quickest driver. I think you'd, you'd, you'd struggle to make an argument that anyone's been quicker but when you got Heike Kovalainen and listed as eighth, a man whose career was destroyed and ended by Hamilton, I think you start to see that there's some, some problems with it still. Well, they need to go away know, and work a little and, harder. And Heikinen, uh, uh, he... Have uh, uh, you just showed, invented a new Finnish driver? There is no one no, Heikinen. No, no, not Heikinen. <laughs> what did I do? I, I just, Heike I, Kovalainen. Yeah. yeah, I put his first and last name together. Um, no, uh, Kovalainen, he had a lot of promise early on. But uh, and then it just kind of fizzled out. Um, what about uh, like Mika Hakkinen? Yeah, I don't. I don't have the list in front of me, but I don't remember him featuring that highly. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, he was a staggeringly quick driver. He was the only yeah. one who could uh, hold a candle to Schumacher. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I, I. Anyway, it's an interesting study. But if you're if you're trying to cling on to something that's not a Hamilton victory, you know, go look it up. <laughs> so um is there anything about the spanish spanish grand prix that stood out for you 
Um, <laughs> not a lot. It was pretty bad, wasn't it? Yeah. It wasn't very exciting. I mean... I, it, I, I mean, that is a brilliant test track. But for races, it just doesn't deliver that much for me. I, I think that the, the, the thing we should touch on is the interesting midfield battle because it is really very... You know, you really can't tell who's going to be leading it between Racing Point, Renault, McLaren, you know, and occasionally Pierre Gasly. I mean, it, yeah, it, that's it's, absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Charles has got in the mix now and again as well. I mean, it's really interesting. And Renault were very quick in Belgium, but they were really Fourth bad. and fifth? Yeah, really bad in Spain. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it, you know, it depends on the nature of the track and, and how the car performs, but... But, uh, you know, Ricardo finished 11th in Spain, not even in the points. And, yeah, and then he goes and finishes fourth in Spa. And a competitive fourth. I mean, he was closing on Verstappen at the end. Absolutely, he was. Yeah, yeah so it's, that is... And I believe, actually, Ricardo got fastest lap. He did, yeah, on the last yeah. lap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a great drive. Great to see him back, you know, fighting towards the front end of the, of the field. Um, and, you know, to, to, to support that, Ocon, you know, finished fifth in Belgium. Um, but again, was not in, didn't feature in the points in Spain. So it's really interesting. I mean, McLaren started the season very strongly. Uh, and in fact, they are still third in the Constructors' Championship. But their pace has sort of dropped off a cliff recently. I mean, Norris got seventh in Belgium. Um, Sainz' car didn't start due to a, an exhaust issue. Uh, so the second car this season that hasn't started a Grand Prix, very odd. Uh, so yes. McLaren yeah, struggled. And then, I mean, Racing Point's lack of performance in Belgium was really odd. I mean, that's a track that they've always been pretty quick at. And um, they've got the Mercedes engine. Yeah. And yet and, they And really chassis, struggled. effectively. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Ninth and tenth in the race. And they weren't... Yeah. Uh, they weren't any quicker in quality. So No, they were towards the back. I think they made Q3, yeah? But they yeah, were yeah. towards the back of Q3. Mm -hmm. um, Double-checking now as we speak. They ended up, yeah, 8th and ninth. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, Spain, I think we'll just gloss over Spain. Belgium was more interesting. Uh, I mean, Not what, by a ton, though, if I'm honest. Well, so the interesting thing I read was that there's... People who think that Red Bull really messed up, they were playing between a low downforce, you know, and a higher downforce uh, setting in, in free practice. And it seemed like the low downforce looked every bit as good, apart from obviously they had, uh, you know, slightly higher straight line speeds. Um, but they, because the forecast indicated it was going to rain on Sunday, they went with the higher downforce setting. But if they'd stuck to their guns, they might have been able to challenge for the win, at least with Verstappen. So a bit of a missed opportunity there, potentially, because you look at, he was never that far away, and he certainly kept Botas very honest. I mean, in qualifying, he was right there. Yeah. And he wasn't a million miles off him in the race, either. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. And and Spa is such a beautiful track to watch race cars lap around anyway. it's So there's always inherent goodness to the, the Belgian Grand Prix, even if the racing itself isn't that exciting. But this this time around, and maybe it's partially that uh, uh, the honeymoon uh, the honeymoon period of the 2020 season is truly ending, and we're seeing, as, as we mentioned earlier, very repetitive results. 
um, in for the for the top three again in both qualifying and the race, and maybe that's starting to lag a bit on and kind of uh, show itself. So uh, I'm 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 obviously still going to watch with great intent uh, the Italian Grand Prix this coming weekend, but uh, I I am hoping that we get a little bit more shakeup. I'd love to see Renault. Um, I'd love to see Renault continue to show promise. I'd love to see Racing Point get in there and uh, mess things up a bit. Uh, Lando has been brilliant to watch, as has Signs. So, you know, it'd be good. It'd be good that we'd get a little bit more interesting Italian Grand Prix. I mean, to be fair to the producer, he did go down the order to find some racing, didn't he? He didn't just stick to the top three. I think we saw some pretty interesting, uh, even lower. I remember seeing a Williams on the on the screen at one point. <laughs> Not that far down the field. To get some action, so yes, no, that's that is one hundred percent fair. Of course, so, we can't we can't leave Belgium without talking about Ferrari's worst performance for forty years. Oh <laughs> my god! 1.3. They were one two last year, and they were one point three seconds slower than last year. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. just extraordinary. But doesn't that uh, doesn't that showcase what was going on with their engines as clearly as anything? Well, they were beaten by Kimi, which is in a... He's in an Alfa Romeo powered by a Ferrari engine. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Their customer team beat them. That's how bad it's gotten. Yeah, that does kind of shut that argument right down, doesn't it? Yeah, it's... I mean, it's not good for the sport. I mean, nobody wants to see Ferrari fighting over 13th and 14th. I mean, I do applaud the drivers, though, their commitment to hit each other at the end of the Kevil Strait, fighting over that 13th place. But, you know, it's, it's not really where we expect to see them fighting. And, I mean, for what it's worth, Vettel did come out ahead in that one. Yeah, so, yeah, he had a good race, really. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> Beat his teammate. I mean, really, truthfully, that is, in all honesty, that is his one and only real metric. You know, the more competitive he is against uh, Leclerc, even now that it's so clear that Leclerc is the lead driver of Ferrari, uh, you know, the more he can do that, the, the better off he is. But not to sound like a broken record here, why on earth would you think about hiring Sebastian Vettel for your brand new Aston Martin F1 team at the cost of probably, what, 20 million a season? Maybe 15 if you strike a really good deal. When you could have Nico Hulkenberg effectively for free, I know who I'd take. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, listen, I, 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 I think that Vettel is a strong racing driver that got very lucky in his circumstances early in his life, which put him in higher regard than maybe he totally deserved, and. Uh, he was lucky that he had this just really successful period between 2010 through 2013. Wow, and that's harsh. That is way harsher than I no, would no, be. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not saying he was bad. I'm. I'm. I'm, say, I'm saying he's quite good, but just not. Not time world champion. Quite good. <laughs> but that's what. But that's my point. Is is he as good as Alan Prost? Oh yeah, the stats say he is. He's won more races. About the same number of races. Well, I mean, then I clearly I, Michael Schumacher is much, much better than Senna. I mean, that just completely negates. I, I, I mean, I know, I, in all seriousness, I don't remember Prost ever being annihilated by a teammate. 
I mean, yeah. he was never even against Senna in the McLarens. He had his. Uh, he wasn't good in qualifying, but he certainly was there in the races. And um, I, you know, I don't want to question his four titles at Red Bull, uh, Vettel's four four world titles. But his pace, his race craft, you know, the last few years has not been good enough. Yeah. By any stretch of the imagination. So why would he deserve another drive? Yeah, and I, I true, I mean, I, I, I truly don't mean this negatively. I hold him in high regard, genuinely, and as a person, I hold him in very high regard. It seems like when he's not on the track, he's he's a very genuinely good person. But it, I just feel like, I feel like he's a really highly regarded driver, but maybe, maybe just got a little bit more credit than he deserved because of luck and circumstances, and now he's suffering. As a result, and um, you know, now that he's got some real team, he's gotten a little older, and he's gotten some real teammates that are really pushing him. Uh, that combination is making it look worse than it should be. Uh, and I don't know. Maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe he was every bit as quick and deserved every single one of those championships completely. But now he's a dad, and his and his uh, priorities have changed. It could be as simple as that. And I'm overthinking it. Yeah, I mean, he did put in some stunning drives uh, when he was with Red Bull. I mean, there was a series of races where he, you know, he would comfortably put it on pole and he would drive, you know, the first couple of laps uh, just way quicker than anyone else to get himself out of DRS range and then just control the race from there. I mean, that was his that was his playbook, wasn't it? And it was stunningly effective. And he, Yeah, and his ability on cold tires was uncanny. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and he beat, you know, Alonso when he had a competitive Ferrari. He beat Hamilton when Hamilton had a good McLaren. And he beat Mark Webber, who, who was no slouch, in, in equal equipment. And so I don't want to rewrite history and say he, he did, wasn't worthy of those four titles. But I do, don't think, you know, the question is why lengthen your career? You've had a pretty torrid time the last four or five years. Go be a dad. You know, go run the Indy 500. Go, go do something else. But don't just hang around in F1 and continue to sully your reputation. That doesn't seem like a, a winning strategy to me. Well, it's funny you mentioned the Indy 500. I was going to ask if you wanted to talk about that or Williams first. We're talking about both. Oh, let's, yeah, let's stick with F1 for a second. Yeah, let's finish that off. So what do you think of Bernie Ecclestone buying the Williams F1 team? <laughs> I mean, it is a bit strange that it, it's a family, a family purchase behind this uh, investment fund. They're based in Europe. They have, you know, significant net worth. And the company's name is BCE Limited. I mean, that's a bit coincidental, isn't it? Yes. Bernie, of course, denies it. <laughs> of course he does. Which, yeah, exactly, is is as predictable as the sun rising in the morning. But... Uh, you know, I, do you do you think there's real validity to Bernie purchasing the team, or do you think that's just a fun coincidence in our crazy world? Um, well, the guy is very smart. This is a man who turned F one into a into a super rich sport, made everyone very very wealthy, sold sold the sport, then managed to buy it back again and sell it again. You know, adding a couple more billion to his bank account. I mean. To me, if you've got a team struggling and a, and a family wanting to get out and you can come in and buy them and make a lot of money out of it, that sounds like Bernie all over. 
Yeah, but at the same time, just like Vettel, in fact, more so than Vettel, Bernie's a new dad. He's got new priorities. (laughs) 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 Can you imagine? I mean, there is an 89-year difference between father and son. Holy God. He's buying his son a race seat. I just put making you and me even worse than we thought we were. <laughs> yes, yet another pro- father to prove he he loves his son more than we love ours. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the weird thing, the weird thing about this whole story is that Claire Williams has come out. You know, one of her passion speeches saying that uh, you know that this is a great time to seek new investment in the team because now the playing field's being leveled and there'll be a chance to get, you know get back and be competitive again. Yada yada yada. It's like, well, then why are you selling up? Why don't you just? You've gone through the worst of it, right? You've, you've got back to some level of competitiveness this season. Yep. So hang on in there, right? Get your extra money that you're now going to get paid over the coming seasons, and get back to where you belong. Instead, they're bailing. And to me, it's it's very opportunistic. You buy a race team when it's on its knees, right? And you wait for you know you invest wisely. You bring it back to where it should be, and you make a ton of cash. Yeah. And it's fascinating to me because, as I understand it, she's re- the, 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 the mystery buyer retains full control, gets full control of the team, but is retaining current management. Well, you're not going to clean house on the first day, are you? But I don't, well, I don't think Claire Williams would be running the team next season. I'll just uh, I'll, I'll, I'll drop that bombshell right now. And I know you're a Claire fan, and I don't dislike the lady, but she's no Frank. Well, and, but I mean, I mean, Frank's no Frank either. I mean, not anymore. No, but yeah, I mean, Frank hasn't been Frank in a long time, and I think that uh, I think that I think that you and I are maybe five degrees to p- apart on this, where I largely agree with you, but feel like I think I give more of the circumstances to just the circumstances as opposed to her decision making than you do. But by by just a small margin, I, I understand where you're coming from, and I understand why. And I mean, you know, this was something that she never really wanted to uh, get into. If you believe her own uh, story about this, this was not her intention to become a team principal of a team. It just it just kind of fell into her lap by again by circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I am very, very sad about this whole situation. I mean, I've loved, since I've started watching Formula One, I've always loved the Williams, you know, the way Williams went racing. It was just about going racing. It was none of the, the nonsense that you got with some of the other teams. You know, they were all about putting a great car on the grid. You know, in the in the late 80s and the 90s, they, you know, they dominated the sport. They gave us some amazing, amazing moments. I mean, they gave us, you know, Jacques Villeneuve world title. So, I mean, thank, thank heaven for that. Eh? I know that that particularly <laughs> makes you happy. So. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 my favorite. <laughs> that one. But um, to see their fall from prominence, I mean, I'm very happy that they're still. If they, if the claim is that Williams' name will stay on the grid. But one thing that shocked me was, and I think I mentioned this before, when I was in Austin last year, there was no sign of Williams. You couldn't buy a Williams hat. You couldn't yeah. see any, any, any that they were even there racing. And of course, they were d- dreadfully slow last year. 
But what a fall from grace. I mean, of course, no, no team is ever going to have the cachet of Ferrari. But uh, yeah, it just it seems like a desperately sad end to me for a team that was at absolute cutting edge of Formula One at one point. And to, to you know, they're not the first team. Yeah, we, we've seen it with the likes of Tyrrell, uh, with BRM, with Lotus. Great teams have come and gone. But I thought Williams would, would last a little longer than this. And they certainly wouldn't go out, you know, with zero points for the second season running. Well, yeah, here's, here's hoping that George Russell can fix that. What about IndyCar? There happened to be an IndyCar race uh, in all of this. It happened to be a rather big one. Fernando Alonso raced in it. I interviewed Fernando Alonso. Um, we While had he was a, racing? Is that, is that yes. why he finished 21st? Yes, exactly. It was. It was. Uh, no, it was a Zoom meeting, and I have video proof of this that I will show you at some point. Um, it was a Zoom meeting that was uh, thirteen and a half minutes long, eight o'clock on a Sunday. And oh, you got him uh, up. Got him out of bed. Yeah, we. Um, well, no, he was. I had to wait for him to finish a debrief after a Sunday evening practice. So this was a week before the race start. Oh, I see. And and uh, so I talked with him. I made him laugh a couple of times. Um, and uh, it was interesting. You know, Fernando Alonso is very adept at understanding what to say to media to get the kind of response. He, he's very good at not drawing attention to his um, more notorious traits. I think is a good way to say it. He he emphasized about how much he feels like a rookie in uh, in the sport of IndyCar, and that he has much to learn. And he de-emphasized the importance of the coveted motorsports triple crown, um, but acknowledged the fact that it was definitely something he wanted, but claimed that it wasn't the sole driver of his what he was doing, and. Uh, you know, kind of talked about, you know, he did the Dakar rally and that's something he wants to keep doing. You know, he's run uh, he's run and won the 24 Hours of Daytona, the sports car race. It's kind of, you know, IMSA's 24 Hours of Le Mans. And uh, he, he's a very, very smart man. And even I knew I didn't. I didn't ask him in such a way. And by the way, I, uh, the interview is, is on autoweek.com. I will put a link to this in the show notes. Um, I, did, I asked him a knowingly triggered question, um, uh, which was, you know, hey, Honda's outperforming Chevrolet here big time. You know, how do you feel about your chances in the race given that? And, you know, it wasn't meant to be a, hey, you should have stuck with Honda. But it was kind of like you almost know anything that brings up Honda is going to bring up emotions. But he handled that perfectly fine, and uh, it was it was fascinating to hear him talk about going back to Renault. He's going to be 100% committed to Formula One. He's not going to be doing any other type of racing for the next two years when he's at Renault. And he claims he claim he told him he told me that he's going to do Renault for two years, and then he's going to retire no matter what. That's the end. Oh, really? That's oh, his God. claim. Is, is that an exclusive? 
I, I wouldn't say that. No, I, I, I'm sure he told 10 other people that the same weekend. <laughs> um, well, that's interesting, isn't it? That's a very... So what's he hoping to get out of returning to Formula One for two years with Renault? Is he hoping for wins, titles, podiums? He, he just, I don't know. He just, he just said he had the desire to do it. And he doesn't think, you know, he doesn't know if he's going to go back to the Indy 500 afterwards. It, see, it almost sounded like he was more interested in Dakar than he was in the Indy 500. It's almost like he's washed his hands of it. Oh, really? So, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, he had a tough old uh, month of May in August, didn't he? Um, yeah. yeah it, what, I mean, he crashed in one of the practice sessions. I forget which one. There's so many in the lead up to the, to the race. I, they sort yeah. of yeah. start to meld into one. But I know he, he had clutch problems as well. He, he was never quick. He was never sort of really on the pace, was he? But uh, Well, and the McLaren Arrows IndyCar team is not a front-running team generally, so... No, that's right. It wasn't like he had the car and couldn't make it. I'm, I'm not suggesting that because he's shown that he's quick around Indy. Um, so no doubt about that. But I just, uh, I, it is very curious to see what he's, I mean, especially before Renault showed signs of life in Belgium. You kind of wonder what the point was coming back to Formula One. And, uh, you know, especially when he, it must rankle with him that he's still only got two world championships because you've you got to believe that he thinks he deserved a lot more than that. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, there's no doubt. But uh, I don't know. I, I I did, I appreciated my time speaking with him. He was, you know, he was, a, he was, he gave good, honest, insightful answers. And you have to, you have to, you have to respect him, whether you like him or not. You have to respect him in the racing world. He's, he's, he's extremely capable. And there's just no doubt about it. I mean, I don't think there's many people who doubt that he's been one of the greatest drivers of, you know, of the current generation. I mean, he, you know, he drags performance out of cars where it really has no right to do that. I mean, he's shaded most of his teammates, bar one notable one, but, you know, by quite, <laughs> <laughs> by quite a margin. I mean, this is only... Now, now that's <laughs> been in at least one of the love letters. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> um, I mean, his only failing, you'd have to say, is his lack of ability not to just uh, trouble in every team he goes to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other than Which that, is he's a big problem. <laughs> it is a big problem. But other than that, he's a complete driver. Yeah, so if you could just, if someone could just gag him the entire time he's driving for someone, he'd probably do much better. You know, they say third time's the charm, right? Well, this is his third time with Renault, so. Well, this is, yeah, this is where he won his two titles. Maybe that's it's, right. Maybe we're going to have deja vu. He could end up level with Vettel. So, <laughs> thank. Uh, that is just uh, really great to talk to you about all these different things, Chris. I appreciate that. And, oh, there's uh, one. There's one more. There's one more topic we have to talk about, and that's. Paul. Oh, but let's see if there's anything I'm interested in. Maybe I'll just cut you off and end this. What? What is it? Alex Zanardi. I really, really. Oh God! Yes, yes. Oh my gosh! Absolutely. I mean, Zanardi is an absolute hero. I think anyone who knows his story uh, appreciates what an incredible. A human being he is I mean not only a fantastic racing driver but just you know a man who can come back from the most 
extreme circumstances, having you know lost both his legs in an IndyCar race in uh, in Germany, Germany. Yeah. yeah. Um, and come back to race successfully in cars and then have a whole new career on hand bikes, winning gold medals. But and like marathons, I believe they are. Yeah, I mean, the guy's just extraordinary. And he's just such a, if you listen to any of the interviews with him or read his book, just an amazing individual, you know, with such a zest for life. And to hear that he had that uh, hideous crash where it seems like he's come in, in, in you know, and... and uh, had an accident with a truck, right? And, and and it's caused a lot of facial or cranial injuries. It's just horrible. So I really hope it sounds like he's making headway and and uh, the worst a bit worst situations behind him. And let's hope he makes a full recovery. Recovery. Yeah, he was in a coma for a while. I know. So it was a it was a real serious accident. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, yeah. It's a really horrible story. So let's. Uh, Best wishes yeah. for Alex. God, Godspeed to him, absolutely. No, I, I appreciate you bringing that up for sure. But uh, I do want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcast. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Chris, ooh, that was a good one. <laughs> Thanks, Robin. Thanks, everyone. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. <laughs>